Hi, welcome to the Radiation Research Society podcast. My name is John Early. Today I am interviewing Carissa Rittner. Carissa, can you tell us a little bit about your science? Sure. Um, I'm Carissa Rittner. Uh, I'm a master's PhD student in Gail Wolschak's lab. Um, I'm looking at microRNA regulation of radiation resistance in neuroblastoma. Pretty cool. That's very complex. Um, is this, uh, you'll have to forgive me, I'm a little uneducated. Sure. Is this data driven? Is this uh, physics, biology? Um, what would you follow? This is all biology, wet bench mostly. Okay, okay. And how is it working out at Gail Wallachak's lab? Love it. Cool. Gail is amazing. Why is Gail awesome? Have you met Gail? Um, she's pretty cool. She is. <laughs> um, she's just really helpful. She's just a really good solid positive presence in the lab so it's really especially being grad students where a lot of times mentors aren't truly mentors and they're more focused on getting their own research done furthering their own publications getting grants and really that's their focus um, she's much more concerned with actually providing a good positive experience mostly for the grad students but for everybody in the lab just to make sure that it's a really positive supportive environment Sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, what's your day-to-day -day work like? Uh, well, uh, wake up, get really sad, drink a lot of coffee, uh, roll into lab. Coffee fixes uh, sadness. It does. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> um, do a few experiments. Mostly, uh, again, it's mostly wet labs. So um, grow some cells blast them with an irradiator, see what happens, basically. A lot of pipetting? A lot of pipetting. Okay. Lots and lots of pipetting. Um, I do a lot of kind of um, smaller arrays, so lots of 96 well plates. Um, the microRNAs are mostly done through um, qPCR analysis, so tons and tons and tons of 96 well plates on that. Um, we also do a lot of uh, Western blots, kind of very traditional molecular biology. Okay. So. So a lot of what you do in a day-to-day -day is like a very standardized process. You've got a pretty... A lot of it is, yeah, yeah. Would you say it's like regimented, like you kind of know what you're in for before you come in each day? Um, for the most part, yeah. I mean, there's some variability just because cells are cells. Um, but yeah, I kind of try to plan things a couple of weeks at a time. Um, we are doing more um, large data uh, stuff, so pulling in um, some pre-existing uh, clinical data, and so that's a little more, you know, you kind of do what you can as you can. Um, don't have to rely on cells, which is really nice for that. Oh, okay. So are th th these data sets, are they pure data, like there's no tissue to be involved with them? Or is it um, not for our case, at least. Um, okay. So we're looking at um, large data sets through the NIH, um, so they're uh, controlled access data sets um, that we were just granted access to, which is amazing. Um, so we're just starting to process those, um, but it's looking at, um, it's all patient samples, but everything has been processed already and run through arrays. And so we're looking just at the raw data and trying to do our own analysis on those. Um, there are some side-by-side -side, uh, tissue samples as well, but we haven't really looked at that portion of it yet. Okay. Um, when you're dealing with restricted data sets, are mm -hmm. there special precautions when dealing with it? Uh, to, I don't understand if like in testing yes. the tissue, will it deteriorate the tissue or anything like um, that? So the tissue is all preserved, so that part isn't um, 
so much of a concern. Um, it does kind of limit the analysis that you can do, but most of the stuff that you need fresh samples for has already been done, and that is the data files that we process. And so um, for the data files, that's the more controlled access portion of it. You have to submit um, your research proposal and show one that you have a really solid plan in place for what you want to do. You're not just going for a fishing expedition. Um, yeah. And then uh, you also need to show that you can properly handle the data because it's non-anonymized for the most part. And so you need to show um, that you and the university can properly handle this and control and not expose patients. So in the data set you're talking about, obviously there's that attached privacy concern. Mm -hmm. um, in, other, in these restricted sets, is there also like a consumption concern? Like every time you test, do you lose a little tissue or you have to irradiate a little uh -huh. more? So it's like there's sort of like a, uh, a deterioration of the amount of data you can get access to? Um, again, for the, the true data sets, no, because it is, it's just... Um, it's numbers. Yeah, it's numbers. Um, for the tissue samples, yeah, it's a very limited, and so that's why it's actually treated as kind of a separate project. Okay. Um, how long have you been at this? <laughs> Too long. Too long? Is that like uh, five years or 50 years? So um, I've been in Gail's lab for only about two and a half years now. Um, I graduated with my undergrad in 2007. What was your undergrad in? Um, chemical biology. Okay. Yeah. So I did that and then I actually did a tech job um, at UCSF for four years before I went to grad school. Um, that was actually in a very different field. I did um, all developmental biology, mostly focused on um, cardiovascular development and uh, skeletal muscle. Interesting. Yeah. Did a lot of stem cell research looking at very basic molecular signaling. Um, and then I came to grad school, was roughly anticipating kind of staying somewhere in that field um, and got relatively quickly diverted into uh, cancer, basically. Um, worked on some glioblastoma for a while um, and then moved on to Gail's lab now looking at neuroblastoma and radiation. Interesting. So when you got into cancer, was it uh, cancer research, is that the correct term for it? Or would, okay, I didn't know if it was oncology <laughs> or, uh, when you got into cancer, were you immediately into radiobiology or was it no. like cancer straight up first and then you slowly started coming over the radiology um, side? So when I first moved to cancer oncology stuff, um, it was still mostly um, molecular biology stuff. So uh, microRNA signaling um, and looking at how uh, we can manipulate that um, to uh, target glioblastoma very specifically and reduce off-target effects. But this was all for chemotherapy, actually. Um, I didn't actually start doing radiation until I joined Gail's lab. And it was very much a trial by fire, really. <laughs> but again, Gail is awesome, so it, it actually went pretty well. What, uh, you say trial by fire, what are some of the challenges when you transition from uh, outside the radio radiological fields into something where you start dealing with something, a science that is truly interdisciplinary. Like it's got a lot of physics, it's got a lot of chemistry. To it, it does. Um, so I do think that is the one place where um, my undergrad experiences benefited because um, I took a lot of physical chemistry, organic chemistry, um, 
lots and lots of physics and stuff, which I think most of the time biologists don't really have that background. And so it has been able to kind of provide a nice basis for everything. So I'm definitely not an expert in a lot of those, but it's enough that at least um, new topics are totally new and there's some familiarity. And so that makes it a lot easier to transition. Very cool. Um, so just so I can make sure I say this correctly, mm -hmm. coming from a chemistry background, right? Would you yes. say a chemistry biology background? Yeah, kind of a mix. Kind of a, kind of a mixed bag. So it, when getting into radiology, since it's that mixed science, your sort of undergraduate skills were able to blossom. Well, in the tech side, you were pushed heavily into biology with the cardiology. Yes. Yeah, it's been interesting, really. It's because especially um, moving into radiation, it's been utilizing a lot of topics that I really hadn't touched on in a while. And so, yeah, having to kind of go back to some very basic textbooks and being like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then, you know, and then things move over here and they go, okay, cool, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> um, you said that, you know, the data is pretty much the same. Like, it's pretty easy to tell what you're going to be doing when you come into the lab. And you know a few weeks out what's going on. Have you ever been surprised? Have you ever been, like, growing cultures and all of a sudden you were like, whoa, like, have you ever been shocked uh, while working on your stuff? Well, I have never had contamination, that's for sure. <laughs> um, so as far as doing the more molecular biology stuff, um, I mean, things are always kind of changing, especially since I'm looking at some fairly novel microRNAs. Um, trying to figure out and really tease out the mechanisms that it's altering in the cells has been really interesting because there's no basis for them. Um, so there's very, very little in the literature to try and figure out. So it really has been kind of going in with only the background in microRNAs and kind of understanding a general concept and then trying to tease out specifics. Now, how does one go about teasing out the specifics from RNA? I, I take it there's not an RNA snack you lay in the dish and they just come out? I wish there was. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so there are um, programs that will help you. Like simulations? Yes. Um, so there are synthetic predictors of where um, specific microRNAs, they can look at the sequence of the microRNA and then they look at the sequences of mainly the three prime UTR for a given um, predicted target gene and they can try and match it up and see if there's the right kind of um, interaction that should have an effect on the target gene. So you can use that at least as a starting point, but then you have to go through all of the proper you know, molecular biology stuff to really prove that that is what's happening. And a lot of times the predictions aren't accurate. And it also misses them sometimes too. Well, and that's what I was going to ask when yeah. you said, because this is such an early space with the microRNA, how could we have simulations with like, you know, verifiable results when this type of stuff hasn't been done before? So yeah. what's it based, what is this simulation based upon? Computers. Computers are magic. So it's, it's computer, yeah. it's computer yeah. data. It's, it's, yeah, it's all in silico based stuff. So um, yeah, just using the sequence of the microRNA and then it screens through the sequences of all of the different genes and tries to figure out what might actually be able to bind. Um, the way in which you're utilizing your software, every time you run an experiment, are you able to feed those results back into it so it'll become more predictive? Will it no. Be? Okay. These are independently run. 
So we don't actually do anything except tell it, you know, look at this one sequence and tell me what might be happening. We don't actually have any control over the prediction software, How which is also why there are multiple prediction softwares. And so I don't rely on any one to do this. I look at multiples and try and figure out, um, cross-reference each of them and see if we can come up with a better, um, smaller, more reliable subset. When dealing with something that's so small, is it difficult to isolate the things you're looking for? Or is it often like in this simulation, we have to um, run 10 because we can't separate these 10? So microRNAs are, I don't know, they're kind of weird, I guess, because it's they are very small, but they're actually, because it is such a hot topic and has been for a couple of years now, um, there are kits that you can use that will allow you to um, isolate and actually enrich small RNAs. So that is very helpful. Now, are these kits, is this something like CRISPR or? Okay. Um, well, not like CRISPR per se, but um, like, like RNA isolation kits. There are ones that are very specific to microRNAs. Okay, and there's enough differentiation between the microRNAs where like when you do an isolation kit, you can get your one or you end yeah. up with like a whole, okay. Yeah, you can, well, it's, you end up with a pool and then you have to um, enrich for them. So uh, like there's uh, primers for mRNAs and they now have specific primers for microRNAs and it's a very different chemistry, but it's the same kind of principle. Um, when you're looking for the specific uh, part of these microRNAs and you've done this, you've kind of isolated, do you end up with like, you said you might end up with a couple. Is this a pool that then you draw and isolate from to try and get that RNA to tease out what you can from it? Or do you just kind of run it on that whole sample? Um, so, hmm. Well, so how do I explain this? Uh, so the way that we started with this, I guess, mm -hmm. um, is running a microarray okay. on um, treated cells. So looking at a zero gray versus a five gray and seeing what happens on that. And then when you run the array, it looks at basically everything that you might possibly be interested in. And then from there, we can narrow it down to what we wanted to do. And so that's basically what we did was we took a bunch of the top hits and then looked at this target prediction software and tried to see which of the microRNAs targeted genes that we thought looked interesting, basically. And then you can kind of focus from there. So instead of doing the array that looks at all of the different targets, you then use the primers that look at single microRNAs instead. And then that kind of like slowly filters things down. So what kind of spread do you have on your radiation exposure? Is it time-based? Is it just like we give five gray for one second? Like what is um, your... I look at time and dose dependence actually. Okay. Um, so uh, I have um, between two and 48 hour uh, exposures or um, post-treatments. Um, and also looking at between zero control, obviously, um, from 0.5 up to 10 gray. So we're hoping to kind of cover um, several clinically relevant doses on radiation. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how can you start to determine the radiation is damaging the microRNA? What is the telltale sign when you're looking in the dish and you're like, okay, this clearly we've got radiation damage at this point? So um, it's mostly looking at uh, what the radiation is doing to the cell phenotype itself. So um, looking at um, rates of cell death, um, effects on migration, invasion, things like that. Um, but then looking at how it 
perturbs um, the microRNA levels and the, our predicted targets. So seeing how it impacts the levels of the mRNA or the protein of our predicted target genes as well. Interesting. Um, is there any discrepancy between cell death and microRNA damage? Like we've administered like 100 gray, like something absurd. <laughs> and uh, the, we're clearly getting cell death, but it, the microRNA is not a fact. Like, are you able to do, so, do almost a necropsy of the cell? Um, I mean, yes and no, I guess. Um, so in order to look at the microRNA expression, you lyse the cells and extract the RNA, and that's how you do everything. But um, since we're doing it at multiple time points, you can actually look at how the microRNAs respond in a temporal sense. Um, and so we use um, two different uh, neuroblastoma cell lines as well, because there's, um, neuroblastoma is very diverse. Um, some are very radiation sensitive, some are very radiation resistant. Mm -hmm. So we have a cell line to model each of those. And so you can actually see differences in um, the microRNA response in each of those cell lines. Did you, um, was the study chosen, the neuroblastoma, was that chosen because of its dependability in cellular reproduction? So honestly, it was chosen just because our lab had it and we were kind of interested and it looked kind of cool. That's fair, um, that's fair. You had access to the resource and you're yeah. going to need a ton of it to accomplish the yeah. research. So um, neuroblastoma is kind of interesting because it crosses, I guess, my two main background fields. Um, so I have this very heavy uh, developmental biology background and then the cancer background and having neuroblastoma, which is a pediatric cancer, kind of covers both of those because it's altering kind of normal developmental processes and resulting in these kind of terrible malignancies. Um, what do you hope is going to come from your research? I mean, ultimately, hopefully, we end up with better therapies. Um, again, it's it's a pediatric cancer. Um, it's uh, pretty bad outcomes um, for the high-risk patients. Uh, about 70% relapse. The uh, five-year survival is only about 40 to 50%. So it's a pretty severe case. Um, there's also some molecular signatures in neuroblastoma that are very similar to other types of cancers. Um, so uh, like prostate cancer, lung cancer, there are a lot of similarities. So we're hoping that once we kind of get um, these microRNA signatures teased out, we can translate into other types of cancer and help therapies in those as well. That's really good. That was actually my next question is if this had relevancy outside of neuroblastoma and if it would That's continue. What we hope. Yeah. Well, that's, that sounds like a really good thing. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about your work or where you're going and what's happening in your life right now? Um, I don't know. Other than school, I'm pretty boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's okay. It sounds like you're doing some very good research right now. I really appreciate you coming out and talking to us today. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the Radiation Research Podcast.